Welcome to this week's episode of the Rail Delivery Group's Big Conversations podcast, where we chat to leading minds across British industry about reconnecting the UK in a post-pandemic world. I'm your host, Robert Nisbet, the Director of Nations and Regions at RDG. And in our final episode of the series, we'll be speaking to my colleagues at the Rail Delivery Group, Jack Starr, who's the Chief Executive Officer, and Andy Bagnall, who's the Director General. Now, Jack and Andy work together leading RDG to deliver a better railway for customers in the country. Although they have the same aim, Jack and Andy have different strengths and expertise. So Jack's previous roles have focused on improving a customer's experience, while Andy's career has looked to drive change and deliver reform. So in today's discussion, we're going to capture their thoughts on how the future of the railway could be reformed to align with how future customers travel. So neatly tying together their two areas of expertise. So I've done uh, a little introduction, but Jack, why don't you tell everyone a little bit uh, more about yourself? Thanks, Robert. Hi, I'm Jack. As Robert said, I'm the CEO of Rail Delivery Group, and I describe my focus as championing the customer. So I have a, a very clear focus within RDG on the areas within the operation which look to better understand the customer through data, which look to define the um, needs and products and services our customers in form of strategies, and then look to flow through to delivery and managing all aspects of the services that support delivery, both initially and in the longer term when we move into a business as usual environment. Um, My passion is customer. I've worked in the customer space for about 15 years now, And I passionately believe that ultimately all businesses are here for the sole purpose of delivering against customer needs. And it makes for a better environment for both the customer and the employee. Thanks very much, Jack. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, Robert. Hi, I'm uh, I'm Andy. I'm the Director General here at RDG. Uh, My background is uh, in public policy. Uh, I've had about a 20-year career doing various uh, policy, campaigning and communication jobs in, uh, in different, uh, different guises. Um, I lead the advocacy and change functions at RDG, which is a rather uh, grand name uh, for our policy development functions. And then the parts of our organisation that advocate uh, once we've developed policy, we want to actually turn it into reality uh, to make change happen. Uh, and our public affairs and communications and other teams help deliver on that. Uh, I also uh, work on our uh, operational uh, side of the railway, where our train operating companies come together uh, to share best practice. But ultimately, as Jack said, this is about delivering for the customer and the reforms that we're championing at the moment uh, will aim to do just that. And both of your CVs have uh, culminated in this, what is pretty much a pivotal moment, I think, for uh, for our industry. Um, because we're looking at, at two major um, movements here, aren't we? Recovery from, from COVID, but also um, coming at us fairly soon, government reform of the industry. So l- let's dig into this um, a little bit more deeply. And I'll start off with you, Andy, on this. Is the industry ready, do you think, for the scale of change that's likely to come? Well, I think it's going to have to be, uh, Robert. Uh, Certainly, uh, the impact of the pandemic has been absolutely huge. We saw passenger numbers drop down to less than 5% of uh, pre-pandemic levels at the the start of the crisis last year. So the impact on the railway has been absolutely huge. And that is going to necessitate significant reform. And of course, for for our sector, the need for reform existed prior to to the pandemic. 
that delivered hugely the, the public-private franchising model over a couple of decades, uh, but it was starting to, to creak under, under pressure and needed reform. So there was a burning platform. And the pandemic has uh, almost poured petrol on that burning platform. It's, uh, it's accelerated and accentuated uh, the need for reform that, uh, that, that pre-existed. And Jack, w- would you support that? Um, I mean, it, it could almost be seen as, as being quite intimidating at the moment because there is so much change about to happen. There, there is a lot of change about to happen. And you know, who, who could have predicted what we're currently undergoing in terms of the the pandemic and all of the challenges that, that that brings and the industry faced not now but into the future as a result of it and you know our customers have, have been very clear about their needs for a long time now which is why we were calling for reform and it's not complicated they require simplicity they require clarity uh, they want to have a relationship um, with the industry they want to be able to trust the industry and they want products and services that meet their needs and if you reflect on that as a package of wants from a customer perspective, then I don't think that they're asking too much. But also, let's be clear on the fact that customers don't really care about the nature of the reform that we will undergo. They really don't mind too much in terms of how we organise ourselves or the structural changes that we're undergo. But they do care about the impacts on them and they care about the outputs that they can hope to see from us as an industry into the future. Now, throughout this uh, conversation, we're going to be referring back to other podcasts in in this series. Our first podcast was on the future of the customer uh, post-pandemic. And we spoke to Joe Corson, who was the CEO of the Institute of Customer Service. And she told us this. What's happened since the pandemic? I mean, it takes a long time to change consumer and customer behaviour. But one of the things that we're certainly seeing, what's become more important to customers during this time, is uh, that whole sense of uh, quality and safety, information and advice. So if I can go to you, Jack, how has the pandemic, do you think, changed what rail passengers want? I think it has reprioritised in some customers' minds what their needs are. So just hearing from Jo there, she talks about quality, safety in particular, so those things have, have always featured in terms of customer need and customer demand. But the safety aspect is is now receiving a heightened focus, understandably, because people are concerned about safety from a, a number of aspects, safety from a hygiene perspective, you know, safety through making sure that there is adherence for all the, the principles that we've imposed uh, throughout the pandemic and also safety from a vulnerability perspective in a uh, railway where we are perhaps more distance from fellow passengers that we sought some reassurance from in the past. So the it's important that we stay attuned to what those customer needs are and that we have a mechanism within the industry to make sure that we have a, a regular flow of data telling us what they think, what they feel, what's important to them, and that we have an ability to respond to it. Because, Andy, we, we talk a lot, don't we, in the industry about how uh, the railways join communities together. And, and in essence, we're, we're having to go through a big uh, community rejoin session, aren't we, to kind of pull the country back together after we were all marooned in our homes for so long. And the railway can play a pretty key role in that. The railway is a, a sort of critical piece of national infrastructure that connects people, connecting uh, businesses to their customers, you know, people to jobs. It helps get goods to supermarket shelves. So it's got a, 
a hugely important role to play. And picking up one of the points that Jack just made there, I think the the safety aspect uh, is going to be really, really important in attracting customers back. I think people are going to need reassurance. Transport Focus have done some really interesting research uh, in this area, uh, which shows that people uh, are quite nervous. But once they've made their their first journey back, some of those nerves uh, dissipate. So we need to do quite a lot uh, to ensure both that we're telling people what we're doing to ensure uh, good public health outcomes and their and their safety, as well as ensuring their first uh, experience when they actually come onto the railway is good. And the industry's safer travel pledge, I think, is a really important component of this, where the industry's come together to promise uh, extra cleaning, uh, extra hygiene measures, the provision of uh, face coverings and hand sanitizer in vending machine, uh, critically trying to to maximise services where demand is coming back to ensure there's there's space to, uh, to to socially distance and also to provide information so that people can uh, manage their journey more effectively, avoiding busier times. Uh, and that's going to be absolutely critical to ensuring people have that good first experience and they want to uh, want, want to come back on. Obviously, um, passengers' behaviour is going to be really important in this as well. So people uh, wearing face coverings and socially distancing wherever possible, recognising that isn't always going to be possible on a on a on a, a sort of uh, closed system like the like the railway. Um, but uh, but wherever possible, complying with uh, the sort of the rules of the rail, as it were, um, will I think go a very very long way to reassuring other passengers as well that uh, that the railway uh, is a good environment and one that's conscious of their safety when they come back onto it. And you talk uh, uh, there about passenger behaviours. Obviously, one of the tectonic plates that is also shifting here is is the future world of work. And this obviously is taking up a lot of uh, column inches, uh, a lot of airtime in the the media at the moment. What will uh, happen to the commute, for example, given that so many of us have managed to uh, survive lockdown by staring into a laptop for for many hours every every day? Uh, But we spoke to Philip Ross, who's the founder and CEO of a think tank called on work and he told us some people in certain um, situations where they might have small children or um, not enough space to have an effective place to work actually want to leave the home but they may not want to commute into the central business district the heart of the city each day so we predict a huge growth of co-working third space drop-in clubs um, and that could be quite exciting because they could be closer to the community so quite visionary there, Jack. I mean, uh, obviously a very different picture to the one that uh, that we had adapted to but before the pandemic. But I suppose what it points to is how reactive or proactive is the railway uh, industry? Are we going to uh, see how things have changed and then and then adapt to them? Or are we going to be proactive and, and help shape change? Certainly the latter. Uh, we are we, we've been looking at uh, products that uh, allow our customers to behave more flexibly for a long time now. So this isn't something that we're reacting to as a result of of the pandemic, because we recognise that lifestyles change, habits change and evolve. And we also we want to attract uh, customers to the railway who perhaps aren't a typical user. And that's those people that have roles which allow them to work more more flexibly, or perhaps you know the, the youth of today and the the future of the industry tomorrow. And so we need to certainly make sure that we we play to their needs in terms of how we, we function and what services we can offer them. But we should also be clear that no one really knows the answer to, to this question. And we've, we've seen some, some really good research from various um, sources. We've done our own research. 
Um, there's been research that's come through from CBI. We've seen research from Imperial College. And a lot of that tells us that on average, people are going to be working this two to three day working week. And we suggest that there might be a bit of a peak in the middle of the week. Um, and that's something that we're very interested in because we want to make sure that we continue to run a railway that offers a comfortable um commute for our passengers, one that doesn't result in, in peaks and troughs where we have those really exceptionally busy periods and we need to make make it attractive for people to travel out of hours. But this is changing on a daily basis because no one had perhaps forecast that the pandemic would last as long as it has. And as time goes on, we want to continue to, to validate our forecasts. You know, early data showed us um, that we would see a return of around 80% of passengers over a two to three period. We refresh that and we believe that's looking at more like 60%. But we still don't know because we don't have rich data and insight into how our customers are com- going to come back to us within which timescales, how they're going to respond and how businesses are generally going to respond to allowing people back into the workplace. One thing that is consistent, and you picked up on this from from Philip's quote, is that a lot of organisations now are thinking of their office space as a a place to come to, to have those kind of ideation sessions, um, the community discussions, some facilitation, your workshopping. It won't be a place where you come to work to sit down at your desk, to stare at your laptop all day, because there's a view that that could be done more productively from home. And thank goodness, say all of us, I'm sure. But I, I, I suppose responding to what you're saying, Jag, that means, Andy, that we've got to be agile and adaptable then and respond to those different changes. And that presumably means that we need to have a, a suite of products available to us to to, to be able to respond. And, and that inevitably, I suppose, leads us to, to fares reform. Um, let me start by, by responding to that, though, Rob, by saying I'm, I'm optimistic that in the long term, we, we will recover. Uh, I think if you look at the way the railway has bounced back uh, from previous crises, it's recovered from uh, world wars, from, from previous pandemics even. Uh, and in the long term, uh, for an industry that thinks in years and decades rather than weeks and months, I, I, I am confident that passenger numbers will return. But but exactly as Jack has said, it's, you know, in the short term, it's going to be really, really difficult. It's not just going to fall into our laps. We're going to have to work at it. And clearly the patterns are going to be different, even if we do get back uh, to the pre-pandemic overall levels of, uh, of, of, of passenger demand. We need to ensure that we're building a system that is agile, that can respond to, to changes that we don't yet know exactly how, uh, how, it's all going to, how it's all going to pan out. So I think there's a couple of things, actually, that we need to focus on. You mentioned uh, fares reform. That, that is absolutely one of those. Uh, we would like to see uh, a move to, to single leg pricing, which would then allow much more uh, pay as you go, sort of tap in, tap out with a price cap. Uh, that already exists uh, in London for any uh, London uh, commuters who are listening to this podcast. Uh, but London has a different regulatory system to the rest of the, the country. So we would like to see regulatory change to ensure that, that more people around the country can benefit. And, and why that matters is because then rather than needing a crystal ball, as you often do at the moment, to, to predict your travel patterns and know whether buying a weekly, a monthly or an annual season ticket or, or a few sort of day singles or whatever it might be is the best way of getting best value for money rather you just travel and you know with the price cap that you've got a, a best fare guarantee that the, that the industry will just give you the best price for the actual journeys that you've made 
retrospectively. And I think that kind of approach uh, to fares and ticketing is going to be absolutely, uh, absolutely critical to affect people's changing, uh, changing patterns of travel. The, the other thing that I think is going to be really important in building an agile system is making sure that we get the, uh, the new contracts that will replace the franchising system. Uh, obviously, the government needing to, to step in during the, the pandemic to support the railway has, has swept away that previous franchising system. But what replaces it must give operators who are closest to the customer the freedom to respond to what the customer is doing and, and, and telling them. With the best will in the world, uh, a too rigid sort of centrally controlled structure, uh, people at the front line will look sort of behind them over their shoulder inwards asking for permission to act. Whereas private sector operators, given the right freedoms within a framework, can look outwards towards the customer, see how their behaviour is changing uh, and respond to that in, uh, in an agile way as possible. And I think those two things are going to be absolutely critical to ensuring that, as I said earlier, the industry must rise to the, to, to the challenge. Those two things are going to be critical to ensuring that it does so. Thanks, Andy. Just a reminder, you're listening to the RDG Big Conversations podcast, where we're talking to Rail Delivery Group's Jack Starr and Andy Bagnall about how the future of the railway could be reformed to align with how future customers travel. Now, one particular important area is that of, of decarbonisation, how we recover without a car-led recovery. Isabel Dedring, we spoke to on our Green Recovery podcast. She's the global transport leader for Arup and former deputy mayor for London with responsibility for transport. There is a disproportionate, you know, return to the car or over-return to the car, if you want to think about it that way. Uh, it actually goes beyond sort of raw miles traveled. It's also people driving um, less safely, you know, violating the speed limit more often, et cetera. So there's kind of a whole host of kind of worrying things that come out of that from a pollution and road safety perspective as well. So, Jack, it's a, it's a broad question, but what is rail's role in, in avoiding a, this car-led recovery? Well, I, I think one of the opportunities here is for us to continue to re reinforce with more rigour the importance and the impact of cars versus rail in terms of the climate. And you know, there are some really compelling stats here that have been uh, produced by ORR research, for example. So um, showing that rail accounts for just 1.4% of transport emissions, despite carrying 10% of all journeys pre-pandemic, you know, very, very small percentage versus the car. But we need to look at, well, why, why are people jumping into the, the car? Well, there are some challenges around first and last mile, and I see it uh, as being incumbent on the rail industry to work with our partners to make sure that we have an end-to-end -end journey, an end-to-end -end capability available to our customers, and that includes you know, every aspect of that journey, not just the travel aspect, but the, the booking aspect, the research aspect. So there's a lot of work and effort underway there. We need to reinforce for the general public um, the extent to which they can take a greener journey with rail, but also reinforce the benefits. Um, I confess, before you know, I started my commute and, and working into to London from home in North Somerset, I hadn't had rarely considered the benefits of a rail journey over jumping in the car because I've lived out of the city. It's always been very convenient for me to jump in the car outside of my house um, with little to no consideration for the implications of that to include the climate. And I, But I think people are now have, have had their eyes open to that. We've lived in an environment for over a year now where uh, 
to an extent, roads around us have been quieter. You know, wildlife's been buzzing, the birds have been around, and everybody has really enjoyed and seen the benefits of this this cleaner environment. Um, we saw the phenomenal uh, activity around freight during the pandemic in terms of you know its transportation of goods up and down the country. And you know, we really need to make sure that we call on government to roll out electrification, continue to invest in further low carbon opportunities that you know, help us recover into the future and protect the environment longer term. There are so many strands here, aren't there, Andy? And, and of course, I mean, this being particularly important, uh, given that we've got the big COP26 conference that's going to take place in, in Glasgow later this year, where, you know, the, the global uh, effort to uh, reduce uh, carbon emissions is is going to be looked at and discussed. Um, but I suppose when it comes back to changing people's environmental behaviours, we inevitably look at, at carrots and sticks, don't we? And and here we could be talking about uh, taxes, you know, whether there should be a, a, a um, environmental taxes imposed on less environmentally friendly modes of transport. Uh, and of course, there's a whole issue of freight as well. I think Jack hit the nail on the head that people coming out of the the pandemic are more conscious than they were going into it of environmental uh, impact of, of some of their behaviours. I think there was that sort of window at the start of the pandemic where people saw sort of cleaner air and uh, and clearer skies and uh, and, I, and I think quite like what they saw and, and, and are more conscious as a result of that of uh, of uh, the environmental impact of their own their own behaviors so I think we will absolutely uh, see people reflecting that in um, uh, in the choices they make. Um, Jack's already said rail is inherently a, a, a green form of transport. But at the same time, uh, it can't be complacent. We absolutely have to continue to uh, invest HS2, rolling programme of uh, electrification and so on, uh, to ensure uh, that uh, that rail is uh, even greener than it is right now going into the future. And critically, and you touched on this in your in your question, Robert, we need to ensure that there's a level playing field of how we approach the taxation of uh, of different transport modes uh, to ensure that people uh, are incentivized to make make green choices, the price of carbon, if you like, needs to be reflected in uh, in transport. And uh, I think it's very important to see this not as favouring particularly sort of one one transport mode over another per se, but just ensuring that they're treated evenly. Um, so, for example, we've obviously seen fuel duty frozen for eleven years, but but rail fares, successive governments uh, choosing to put up sort of regulated rail fares. Uh, by, by inflation. So just looking at those two things as a, as a whole, I think it's going to be very, very important to ensuring that what we don't do is inadvertently uh, discourage people from making the green transport choice. And finally, we touched on rail's role in the economic recovery. You know, how can the railways help funnel people back into the to the high street and help uh, businesses there? Of course, that also uh, opens up the conversation of levelling up and, and union connectivity around uh, Great Britain. And Paul Swinney, who's the Director of Policy and Research at the Centre for Cities, uh, Think Tank said... Hopefully when we overcome COVID uh, and we can go out freely again, there's pent up demand there for people then to go out and spend in, in cafes, bars, restaurants and, and retail. And so you'll then see this, um, this strong bounce back in those industries, which will see the economy bounce back uh, as a whole as a result of that. So, And we think, well, that's what happened in terms of the recovery. 
So, Jack, that's obviously quite optimistic um, with Paul seeing, you know, a, a, a bounce back uh, recovery. But how does rail support local businesses and, and communities across the country? One, one thing I would say firstly, Robert, just before answering that on your levelling up point, is that you know, HS2 will be key in terms of bringing some of that modal shift to rail um, by giving us the capacity, saving time on journeys and also taking some of the, the passengers off of planes um, away from cars so you know watch this space in terms of hs2 but we wholly support the delivery against that in terms of local economy you know we've seen the um kind of romanticism that's placed on people traveling into their uh kind of local communities by train and having a uh, a network that's available to them having kind of retail sites having all of the amenities that people expect within their communities and so we're really keen as a, an industry to make sure that we're joining up those communities and that rail is a uh, mode of choice in terms of people being able to do that. But we recognise the, the value, the economic value of doing that, not just to the main cities up and down the country, but to offer transportation you know, beyond towns and city centres out to those local communities where we need to really you know, get people travelling um, reinvest, reignite some of the economies that have really fallen by the way over this past 18 months uh, and help invest back into those industries and, um, and local communities, which many of us say we're passionate about rather than than just seeing large investments in corporates within urban centres. I mean, Andy, do, do you think that people underestimate sometimes the economic impact of the railway? I think they do. I mean, clearly, the uh, the railway uh, is uh, a sort of source of derived demand. So to an extent, people don't get on the, the train as an end in itself. They get on the train uh, in order to get to an end destination and undertake sort of other activities. But at the same time, the, the railway facilitates the possibility of some of those end, uh, end activities. So it's a form of virtuous circle that, uh, that, that wider economic activity boosts rail travel but rail travel itself boosts that wider economic activity. And I think that speaks to uh, the, the role of the railway in, uh, in wider recovery. We touched on this earlier, its, uh, its role in, uh, in connecting people to economic opportunities and sort of economic uh, activity. Um, it allows the transport of goods through the, through the freight industry. Uh, the railway's uh, contribution, I think, is going to be absolutely um, phenomenal in terms of driving uh, driving a recovery uh, as we come out to the other side of the pandemic. As long as we get the focus on the, the customer, as both Jack and I have been talking about, and the and the right reforms uh, to allow the railway to really to really play that critical role. Well, much like uh, Britain's railway network, we've covered a lot of ground uh, in the last uh, half an hour. I'm just going to ask you both uh, to answer a very simple question: Are you optimistic? Are you optimistic that we can rise to the challenge here, uh, which obviously is quite considerable, as, as you have both uh, so eloquently detailed? Jack, can I go to you first? Yes, absolutely. It's, um, you know, I have the luxury of being able to see the amount of passion and energy and belief, personal investment, um, corporate investment, customer investment that's taking place across this industry with the sole purpose of making us relevant to our customers for the future. There is, of course, a whole um, ecosystem of activity that supports that statement, but it's a compelling yes from me, Robert. And Andy? 
absolutely the uh, the same. I've already said I'm very optimistic in the long run that the sort of the railway will recover and optimistic that uh, that it will play its part. Uh, as Jack says, out there in the industry, I think there's a huge desire uh, to to help the industry and the wider economy recover for, for the railway to play its part in sort of national recovery. And I see that not just in the industry, but actually uh, across industry and government who will need to, to work together to ensure that we deliver the right changes that will uh, will allow the railway to play its part. So, yeah, like 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 Jack, very optimistic we uh, we can and we must rise to the challenge. It is a fantastically interesting time to be in the industry. Uh, Jack and Andy, thank you very much indeed for sharing your thoughts. And thanks to all of you for listening. And you can find this and other episodes on raildeliverygroup.com and follow the hashtag RDGBigConversations on our Rail Delivery Group social channels uh, for more. Thanks very much indeed uh, for listening. I've been Robert Lisbitz and see you soon.